Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We're only going to look at two verses, but actually these two verses are one sentence. Okay? So, verse 15, this is what we read. Galatians 2, verse 15. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no one will ever be justified. By the works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. There's something broken. There's something not right. When I say broken, I'm not talking about the car breaking down, and I'm not talking about the uh, washer and dryer breaking. I'm talking about the soul. I'm talking about the soul. Something's broken. Something's not quite right. I want to be made whole again. I can't put my finger on it. But something's not right. You see, that's the heart, that's the plea, that's the cry of a person that I believe that God begins to work in that heart and draw them to Christ. And they begin to see and understand it's broke. And I can't fix it. I've tried. And I can't fix it. Everything I've tried to do, it just comes undone. I also think that the Scriptures teach us, I believe that the Bible teaches us this, that every, every person is created in the image of God, right? I mean... He created Adam and Eve, there's the image of God, and, and so every human being that's ever been born, every human being alive now, they, they have the image of God, so that image is there, it's shattered because of sin, but it's still there. So for we'll read things like Solomon saying, eternity's in the heart of every person. We'll read things like Paul in Romans 1, where the knowledge of God is there. The problem is it's being suppressed. It's being pushed down, it's being pushed out, but it's there. Why is it there? Because we are creations of God. And His image, we bear His image. So there is a, a, a general sense in which there's just this, this nagging understanding. It's something's broke here. Something needs to be fixed here. You see, in the new religion, and I've used new religion several times because it is a new religion, this this cultural, spiritual awakening that's happened, and it's not a good spiritual awakening, all right? But but rest, rest assured, it is a spiritual awakening that's happened, all right? It's not just political. What's underlying all of this is a spiritual awakening that's happened, but it's not from God. It's not godly. It's not a gospel awakening. And I say that because they use that language. And if you really read and hear what they say, they use that very language. And what's interesting in in the new religion, what's interesting in this new spiritual movement that's happening, 
is they want to hold on to the forms. They want to hold on to categories. But they gut it of any gospel influence. They gut it of any biblical influence and they push God so far out of it. But they want to hold on to the forms because they want to talk about brokenness and fixing it. And what they don't know, what they really don't understand, well, they don't use these words particularly, but what they're longing for is redemption. It's just that in their sin and blindness and anger, they've totally shoved the gospel out of the way. And they've gone after social justice and other causes and things. In their anger, because deep down something's broke, And they think they can fix it. They're not fixing it, are they? In fact, they're creating a mess. They're creating such a mess. But you see, that's that's what's underlying this. Get, Get beyond the political. It's not just a political movement. Get beyond that. And see and understand what's happening deep within the souls of people right now. My hope and prayer is that we're on the verge of a genuine, true, great awakening. And that what's happened is the, the, the anger and the, 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 the restlessness of soul is that God's beginning to stir. He's beginning to stir. He's beginning to move. And man in his pomp and circumstance feels that and runs his own way, doesn't he? That's got to be that we need things like critical race theory, social justice, and all the things. And that's got to be what we need to do. And they go and they break it even more. But my prayer and my hope is that we're, we're on the verge of a genuine move of God in the gospel. This country may fall. But God could move in a great way in that and through that and the gospel flourish. He's done it before. And that's my prayer that he'll do it again. So back to the issue. Something's broken here. Something, something's not right. Something needs to be made right. I need to be made whole again. Now here's the thing. In the midst of this, as believers, we must, we must, it's an imperative that we be crystal clear. And that while they may want to hold on to certain categories and forms and gut it of, the, of genuine biblical language, we need to be crystal clear about what the problem really is. And that is sin, Right? We know that. It is our rebellion against our Creator. It is our rebellion against a holy and righteous God. That's the problem. Our number one problem is our sin against God. That's it. It's not financial. It's not political. It's not any of that. You remember going through the prophets? You ever go through the prophets? What were the prophets continually saying? The problem here is your rebellion against God. You've sinned against God. That's the problem. So we have to be crystal clear about the problem being sin. We also have to be crystal clear. And I know we've talked a lot about this. We'll talk more about it in Galatians. Because this is where Paul goes with it. The problem's sin, but we have to be crystal clear that the solution is Christ alone. The solution is Christ alone. 
That's it. We, we don't need to have any confusion here. There's enough confusion out there. But here, amongst ourselves, as believers, we don't need any confusion here. Because if we're confused, how in the world are we going to do what Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch and take Scripture and go to Christ? If we're confused about that, we can't do it. So we don't need to be confused. We need to be crystal clear. The problem's sin, and it's Christ. You see, this is bedrock. This is bedrock. This is foundational. Lose this, and we have nothing. Lose it, we have nothing. We must be clear about it. So, here's the fundamental question then. How can a person be right with God? There's this, this troubling of soul and something's not right. And I think about God and I think, oh my gosh, something's not right. Something needs to be fixed. Well, how can a person be right with God? How can he? Right? This is what Paul's going to deal with. And what he does in this one sentence is... Gordon Fee said this is the most important sentence in the whole letter because he sets the stage for what comes. He sets the stage for what's about to come. And, 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 and the issue is going to be how is a person made right with God? Right standing. How can this happen? This is an age-old question. Go back to Job. Go to Job. Take a left and go to the book of Job. Job's probably predates Abraham, predates all of that. Job's probably very, 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 very early. Okay? And so what happens to Job, and we see this issue raised in chapter 9. Job raises the issue. So in other words, this is an age-old question. And man has answered it in a number of different ways. But here's the question. Job chapter 9 verse 1, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? How can a person be in the right before God? Now, we, we would use the language, of how can a person be saved? But we're saying the same thing. To be saved is to be in the right with God. To be a Christian, to be a believer, salvation is to be made right with God. To be in a right relationship with God. Now again, crystal clear. What happened? The relationship's broken. Sin broke the relationship. Who put it back together? God put it back together. How? Through Christ. Now, this question is in chapter 9. And then uh, keep going to the right and go to chapter 25. Comes up again. Comes up again in Job. Age old question. And this is Bildad. Bildad, in one of his answers to Job, verse 1, chapter 25, then Bildad the Shuhites answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there, is there any number to his armies upon whom he does not light? Uh, upon whom uh, does his light not arise? Then here it comes again. See verse 4. Here's the question again. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Bildad takes it even further with an understanding here of our sinfulness before God. 
How in the world can sinful people be in the right before God? It's just an age-old question. Now Paul's going to answer this. He's going to answer it in the book of Galatians. And he's going to begin his answer in this one sentence beginning in verse 15. And the way that he's going to answer it, he's going to make two, I think, two basic points here. Or at least we're going to look at it through the lens of two basic points that he, he makes in this one sentence. Now the question is this, in the context of this verse. The question is, where we've been in Galatians so far. You remember this whole biographical section from Paul. It ended, well, that's the question. Does it end in verse 14? Does Paul's speech end at verse 14 when he says he confronted Peter? Or does his speech continue? In other words, is 15, 16, all the way through verse 21, is it a continuation of what he's saying to Peter? Writers are divided. Some have said, no, it ends at 14. Others have said, no, it continues through. It doesn't matter whether it ends at 14 or whether it continues on to uh, verse 21. It doesn't matter at all about that. Fee is absolutely right when he says this is the most important sentence. And, And what we're seeing, even if it ends in 21, we're seeing a transition happen. He is moving his attention back to the Galatians. His attention has been focused on him and his activity and his defense. I am an apostle. I am a true apostle. I have been preaching the gospel. And and that's what he's been doing throughout this section. So now the transition is starting to happen. He's moving his attention back to the Galatians. And he's about to get into the meat of the letter. He's about to get into his argument. And so in this one sentence... And looking at that age-old question, how can a person be in the right before God? How can sinful human beings be in the right? In other words, right relationship before God. Now, I know that we sit here and we go, ah, come on, we know this. Hey, we know this. And we've gone over this and over this and over this. Why? You know, Paul will say something like this in one of his letters. You know, for me to say the same things to you, it's not a burden to me, but for you it's safe. This is safe territory for us. Because we need to be crystal clear. And this is one place where Paul pulls the issue out and shows it, and it's crystal clear. Now, this is a, this, it, grammatically, this is a pretty complicated sentence. But what he's saying is crystal clear. So, he's going to answer this, I think, and we're going to look at this, um, two basic facts that he gives. Well, here's the first fact in verse 15. It's a very simple fact. Verse 15 is pretty straightforward. This is what he says. He says, we ourselves, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Now, in context, he's probably saying we... If he is still speaking to Peter, then you can see him saying something like, Hey Peter, you know, we, along with Barnabas who's a Jew, and oh by the way, you remember all those other Jews that went away and went strayed with you and Barnabas? You remember that? He talked about how the other Jews went with him. So if he is still continuing his speech to Peter, then you can see where we ourselves are Jews by birth. There's a basic contrast that he's making. 
And we need to understand the contrast. Because if we don't, we fall into the trap and we fall into the error of the Judaizers. Now notice the contrast. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul is not making a moral statement at all. He is not saying that Jews aren't sinners. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying that Jews are righteous morally, ethically, while those dirty dog Gentiles morally and ethically, they're there. There's no hope for them. This has no moral connotations whatsoever. This is simply what Paul is saying. We're Jews. We have the law. The other group, they're Gentiles. They don't have the law. That's the basic distinction that he's making. Now, we understand from Scripture that as being Jews and receiving the law, receiving the revelation of the law from God, placed the Jews in a privileged position. It did. And in one sense, the Gentiles were, were, didn't receive the light. In one sense, you see, they were in darkness in one sense. And here's the other interesting thing. When you look at the Old Covenant... It's not that Gentiles couldn't come into the Old Covenant. It's not that Gentiles couldn't come into that covenant. They could come into that covenant. But there was always a distinction. There was always a division. Just look at the basic structure of the temple. You had a court of Gentiles. Not only that, you had a court of women too, right? There were these distinctions. These divisions. Could they come into the old covenant? Yeah, did they have to be circumcised? Yeah, they needed to be circumcised because that was the sign of that old covenant. That was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Could we proselytize these Gentiles and bring them in? Yeah, sure, absolutely. But listen, understand this. They were always going to be in one sense Gentiles. We were always going to be Jews by birth. We are always going to be Abraham's seed. He's going to bring this up later in the letter. So Paul is making this basic distinction. The question then becomes, why does he start with this? Why does he want to make this basic distinction before he gets to the second part of this sentence? I'm not quite sure why he brings it up, other than the issue had to do with this relationship between Jew and Gentile. And the issue had to do with the Judaizers saying that Gentiles would always be sinners, Gentiles would always be without law, and there would always be distinction and division. Sure, they can believe in Christ. But it'll go a long way to ease this distinction and division. Let's force them to be circumcised. You see, that's the issue. Let's force them to keep the food laws. That was the issue with Peter. Let's force them to keep holy days. And Paul says, I'll have none of that. So I think he brings this up because this is at the heart of the problem that's going on with the gospel here. So again, don't think that he's making some moral statement here. If you, if you read it like he's making a moral statement, then you see how it leads to partiality? 
You see how it leads one to say, well, I Jew, look down my nose at that person. Ah, sure, okay. You you could believe in Jesus, but you go find a church that'll take you. We're not that kind of church. You see how it leads to that attitude? If this is moral, it's not moral. It's just a basic distinction. Let me, let me give you this. This is the way the world used to be divided up. Now it's getting really complicated, but it used to be this. Because if you would read the news and hear what was happening in the world, you would always hear something like this. This goes back a while, but you would always hear something like this. You would always hear the news reported in the sense of Jews and Christians. And there was just a basic distinction throughout the world. That if you weren't Jewish... You had to be Christian. Now that the Christian worldview has just been thrown out altogether, now that non-Jewish category is getting thrown into all kinds of things, right? But you know, you, you, I can remember a time when people would just assume that if you weren't Jewish, you had to be Christian. And the news was reported that way a lot. That's why you would hear things like Christians uprising in the Middle East or Christians uprising in Africa. This or Jews. This. That's the way it was reported. Now, when they would report that, these people that they would claim to be Christian were no more Christian than man on the moon. It's just that they weren't Jews. They just weren't Jews. I can remember, I can remember 20, 30 years ago in a conversation with somebody, and this was point, this, as, as we talked, I thought for some reason that they were Jewish, and I remember making the statement, are you Jewish? And they looked at me and said, absolutely not, I'm Jewish, I'm Christian. Well, I knew they weren't Christian. But that was a basic distinction. So it's this basic distinction that Paul's making now. Jews have the law. Gentiles don't have the law. And in the Jewish and the Old Covenant, they, they, these, these Jews, the Jews were considered to be righteous because they had the law. And Gentiles were considered to be sinners because they didn't have the law. But you know what? Christ changed all of that. When the new covenant comes, all of that is done away with. Keep your finger here in Galatians. Go to Ephesians. Just go to the right. Go to the very next book, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's making this argument to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were separated from Him, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, listen to this language from Paul, but now in Christ, in the new covenant, you who were once, you, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both. Who's the both there? It's the Jew and Gentile. Now listen to the language. This is what got Paul in so much trouble with the Jews. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? 
by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access. We both have access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now what he'll do in verse 3 is he'll get into this mystery. Many have said, what's the mystery here? It's not that the Gentiles would be saved. That was not a mystery. That was revealed in the Old Covenant. What the mystery is, and for Paul, that was hidden, but it's now revealed in Christ, is that Jew and Gentile are brought into the church on the same footing. No more division. No more basic distinctions like, oh, you have the law, we don't have the law. The only distinction now is whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. The only distinction now is whether you're Christian or not Christian. Because if you're a believer, there is no more Jew, Gentile, you see. This is where he'll go. This is where he ends up in Galatians. This basic distinction that Paul is identifying here is done away with in Christ. We don't see people come to faith in Christ and are saved and then say to them, now conform to our image. That's happened and it happens now and it's happened in the history of the church. Now, that's okay, believe in Christ, but now conform to our image. Wear what we wear, talk like we talk, look like we look, do what we do. You see? No, 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 no. When the gospel comes and saves a person, what we do is we say, now be conformed to the image of Christ. That's who you're conformed to. These distinctions that continue in this identity politics that is out there in the political arena now is spilling over into the church and it's dividing. It's threatening to undo this understanding that in Christ there are no more distinctions. Color is skin. Gender. Now be careful there. Don't run out here and say, wow, he's for transgender now. No, I'm just talking about when it comes to answering the question, how can a person be made right with God? It doesn't mean men can be made right and women can't. You see, it doesn't mean one race of people can be made right and others can't. You see, that's out the window because in the gospel, in Christ, in the church, we're one in Christ. He's broken down that middle wall of division. You remember when he dies? You remember what happens to the veil in the temple? It's rent in two saying access now is open to all in the church. We don't have a Gentile section and a Jewish section. We don't have that like they had in the old covenant in the temple. Right? We come to worship. We come to worship as one in Christ. I don't care where you came from. 
I don't care what your past was. I don't care any of that. I don't care what your social standing is. The only thing that matters is your faith and trust in Christ alone. Are you a blood-bought believer of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, then guess what? We're in the same family. And you have the access that I have through Christ, through the working of the Spirit. You see? I, I think this is why it's so important for him to start here. So then what does he do? What's the next fact? Okay, this is who we are. So what's the next fact that he gives? It's what we know. You see this in verse 16. Go back to Galatians. This is where the sentence in the Greek gets really complicated. But, but the meaning comes through. It's because Paul leaves things hanging so much. So verse 16, this is, uh, this is what he says. When he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet, this is what we know. Yet we know this. Yet we know Perfect participle, which means it's something they came to learn in the past that's still affecting the present. This is something that they didn't learn and throw away. They learned and they're hanging on to. They still believe this. They still know this, right? But sometimes we've got to be reminded of things, don't we? Sometimes we've got to be reminded of things. So, yet we know. What do we know? The not here is emphatic. You see the not where it says, yet we know that a person is not? You see that? Actually, that not's at the very first part of this phrase. So it starts with not. Emphatic means this is important. I want to single this out. This is what I want you to understand. Not, not, not. You see? So this is not the way it's happened. This is not a way a per- the, the way a person's made right. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. I don't know how you can get clearer than that. Do you? That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? So, so a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So a person's not in a right standing with God through works of the law, but it's through faith. Then he goes on and he says this, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order, here it comes again, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He hits this and hits it and hits it and hits it. And this one part of this one sentence, he's going to hit it three times. He's driving home a point. And the first thing that he says that we know is this, we're not made right with God by works of the law. Now, we've dealt with justification before, and I'll just touch on it just just brief, just just simply so so that we understand what he's saying by justification. Justification is that right standing with God. It's a legal term. So we're declared righteous. We're not made righteous. Okay, we're simply declared righteous. Guilty sinner before a holy and righteous God, and he declares us not guilty. Why? Because the price was paid by another. Who was that other? It was the blood of Jesus Christ, you see? So I'm justified before God. I have the right standing because of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not my works. It's what he did, right? Justification. So what does he mean by works of the law? Well, in context, it's circumcision, 
You can't say, well, believe in Jesus, but be circumcised. It's, it's food laws. You can't say, believe in Jesus, but you have to eat kosher. It's holy days. Believe in Jesus, but you have to keep these certain days. And if you're not circumcised, and if you're not eating kosher, and if you're not keeping these holy days, well, then you're probably really not saved. You see, that's the issue. I love what Luther said when it comes to understanding. What are the works of the law? Luther said this. Here's a simple understanding. If it's not of grace, it's a work of the law. If it's not purely the grace of God, then the work of the law could be anything for you. It could be anything for you. Baptism, communion, giving your money, whatever. It could be anything. If it's not of grace, and you're trying to make yourself right with God through anything, oh, well, I'm going to give up this, and if I give up this, then I'm right with God. That's a work of the law. I'm just going to be a good person. I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to give money. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go... Whatever it is that you think that's going to make you right with God, it's a work of the law. It won't work. You're going to be frustrated, burnt out. You're going to be left scratching your head wondering how much is enough. I remember that. I remember thinking how much is enough. I remember that. So this is what you know, that we're not justified by works of the law, but it's through faith in Christ. So what is faith in Christ? This is important to hear. And understand this. Because faith in Christ is not mental assent. When he says we have believed in Christ, he's not just saying that I come along and check a box. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe that he died? Yes. Do you believe he was buried? Yes. Do you believe he was raised from the day? Yes. I have those boxes checked. And then you go live your way. You go do whatever you want. And somebody says, are you a Christian? Yeah, I checked the boxes. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I joined the church. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I got baptized. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Sure. Because... Yeah, you believe this? Yeah, I believe it. Even the demons believe, James says. It's not mental assent. Do you have to believe certain facts? Yes, you do. Do you have to accept those facts as being true? Yes, you do. But even in believing and accepting, you're still not a believer. That's still not saving faith. Because there's one more thing. And that is trust and reliance in Christ alone. You see, if he's not who he says he is, I'm lost. My faith is in nothing else. My trust is in nothing else. I don't have plan B. I'm not holding something back in just in case. I'm all in. And if he's not who he says he is, and if the gospel is not true, which he is, and it is, I'm not saying that's even a possibility, but for illustrative purposes, you understand what I'm trying to say. I have no hope. But if you're holding back, and you're going, I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit. It's okay, Jesus thing's okay. But I tell you what, I'm going to store up some works of my own just in case. 
And, and if I get there in the judgment, I'm going to whip these babies out. And I'm going to say, hey, listen, just in case Jesus is not enough, hey, would you consider this and this and this and this? And you know what he's going to say to you? Depart from me. I never knew you. You were never a believer. So faith in Christ is not just mental assent. It ends with trust and reliance. I am trusting Him. I am relying on Him. And Him alone, that's it. That's all I have. He's my only hope. He's my only hope. But notice he says too, as he, as he, as he puts this together here, those three things right there, those three things are mentioned three times here. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. It can't be by works of the law. And then here comes the basic premise. It's sort of like this last little phrase is the basic premise. It's sort of like this last little phrase is the summation of all of it. Let's back up. Let's read the whole sentence from the beginning. We ourselves are Jews by birth not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's impossible. Remember when we started this book, I told you there, there was Luther in his commentary on Galatians. He, he, he lists these things at the beginning. I forget what he called them. But, but there's, a, there's a whole list of things. And one of them that, that he says, one of these little sayings that he says is to preach a justification by works is to preach a justification by impossibility. It's impossible to be saved by works. It's impossible. Isn't that what he just said? Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no one. Now I need to point this out real quick, and we'll get to it more as we get into the letter, but let me just point this out, because you could walk away here thinking, man, Paul hates the law, doesn't he? No, he doesn't hate the law. The law is not the problem. You see, you're going to get to Romans 7, and Paul's going to talk about how the law, how it was the law that showed him that he was a sinner. He doesn't hate the law. He's not throwing law out completely. You'll get to places like 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, and he's going to say things like this. He's going to say something to the effect that the law is good. If one uses it spiritually, if you keep the law in its place and use it for what it was intended to, it's good. Pull it out and try to save yourself by it. Oh man, it, 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 it's going to crush you. It will crush you. So law's not the problem, alright? And also here's the second thing. Don't think that Paul is downing works. He's not. He's just saying, let's get this thing in the right order here. Because when he writes to Titus, he's going to say that the grace of God has appeared. It's appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And he's going to talk about the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the new birth that comes through the work of God. And he's going to talk about how this is not because of works done by us and righteousness, but according to his mercy. But then he's going to say several times, in fact, he closes the letter with this statement, with a statement like this. 
And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent need. And not be unfruitful. Works come. It just doesn't make you right with God. It is the fruit of being made right with God. That's where works come in. We'll see this more as we get through the book of Galatians. Now something's broken. Something's not right. Something's just, I, I need to be made whole. I need to be made right. I, I want to. It's, it's, and then you come to understand it's my sin. What has God done for my sin? He's sent a Savior in Christ who died and was buried and raised the third day, shed His blood for my sin. And it's in Him alone. It's through faith in Him alone. Not by works of the law. See, physical birth is no help. Physical birth is no help. Physical birth, your, your physical descent is no help. Man, we could, we could go, some, go some pretty ugly places with that, couldn't we? That's no help to you. None at all. Law keeping is no help to you. It's no help to me. It's only faith and trust in Christ. Let me read something. This is an old preacher in England. It's not Spurgeon. He was sort of a contemporary Spurgeon. In fact, Spurgeon said of F.B. Meyer, this pastor in England, who was a great preacher, Spurgeon said F.B. Meyer preached like he had, whenever he would preach, it's as if he had just seen the face of God. Wouldn't you? Man, I'd love somebody to say, man, it's just like he just left the presence of God. But uh, F.B. Meyer called Spurgeon his big brother, too. Anyway, this is what F.B. Meyer says. He says, the conditions of salvation are debated in the language of every age. That's why I went back to Job. It's an age-old question. The terms vary, but the controversy is always the same. Substitute ritualism for Judaism. Or the new spiritual movement. I added that. And the rights of the church for circumcision. The rights of the church being baptism, communion, so forth. And you were confronted by the same questions and issues as were encountered by our apostle. Still, men say, except you be christened, confirmed, and received into our church, you cannot be saved. And it is from Paul's store of arguments, which apparently before his, before his old age, his adversaries were silenced, that we must find our weapons as Luther found them before us. Luther, yes, that Luther. Luther, Luther, Galatians was so key. Salvation is not secured by obedience to a right, by the observance of a code of rules, or even by obedience to a creed, pronounced orthodox. A man may be precise in all these and yet be under the wrath of God. You may be right in everything that you believe and still be under the wrath of God. Because you're in works mode. You're in works mode. 
He goes on and he says this, after he says, A man may be precise in all these things, and yet under the wrath of God, and his character be scarred by passions and self-indulgence. It's what Paul will say, having a form of godliness, but denying the power, the reality. Look good on the outside. Jesus talked about whitewashed sepulchers, you remember? It's cleaned up on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Dead men's bones. I was reading a devotion this morning, and it had nothing to do with this, but this phrase dropped me about how what the writer was saying was how people can sometimes go along and lustily sing praises to God and then turn around and lustily run around in the world. And he said this, this is what struck me. If we're doing that, how can we not expect the strict judgment of God? But we carry on as if, no. Meyer goes on, the only condition of salvation is faith, which believes in Him that justifies the ungodly, comes from Romans, and receives into the heart the very nature of Jesus to become the power of the new life. How infinitely unimportant then, compared with faith, is any outward right? It may have its place as an outward sign and seal of the covenant, but it has no efficacy. It has no power apart from the spiritual act. That is repentance and faith. But there is a constant tendency in the human heart to magnify the importance of outward right works to the minimizing of the value of the spiritual attribute, faith, repentance and faith, which it, which it should express or accompany. The outward, listen to this, this is so true. This is why works are so appealing. The outward is so much more accessible. It's easier to give your money. It's easier to join the church. It's easier to be baptized. It's easier to try to keep the Ten Commandments. It is. And it gives you outward satisfaction. It heaps outward praise on you when you do that. F.B. Meyer so right. This outward is so much more accessible, manageable, computable. You can add it up. The spiritual, so removed from human vision and manipulation. And these days men are prone to magnify the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper in the precise manner in which these Judaizing Christians magnified circumcision. And when they are allowed to do so, their whole theory of religion becomes mechanical and formal. When you are in that works mode, your whole religion and your worship is nothing but mechanical and formal. You're going through the motions. You want to know why so many churches are that way now? Just mechanical, formal, no spirit. Those who punctually follow their precepts are hopelessly led into the ditch, while those who denounce their error are anathematized and consigned to the uncovenanted mercies of God. Get rid of your works, and the only thing you have, the only thing you need is the mercy of God. But there's no better place to be, is it? Let us never forget then that circumcision avails nothing, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love, a new creature, and keeping the commandments of God. And let us never fail to follow the apostle's example who said, to whom we gave place in the way of subjection, no, not for an hour, 
that the truth of the gospel might continue with you, that we might be crystal clear as to the answer to this question, how can a person be in the right with God? Because that is the most basic, fundamental, bedrock issue of our time. The reason why people rebel is because they are not right with God. You see? The gospel changes everything. Everything. In this one sentence, Paul makes it crystal clear. Makes it crystal clear. I will say this in closing, though. There is a worse position to be in than trying to earn your salvation. Believe it or not, spiritually speaking, I think there's a worse position to be in. Now, that's bad because you're not going to make it if that's you. But here's a worse position, and that is this. Not even to be aware that there's even an issue. Not even to have a care in the world about these things. To be so unconcerned and uncaring about your soul that you don't even examine these things. You're in a bad spot. That is a worse position to be in than to be trying to earn your way to God. Spiritually speaking. No care, no concern whatsoever. You're not even aware. This is the problem. You're not even aware that you're not right with God. And it could be because you've anathematized yourself. Is that, is that the word? Is that how you use it? Anathematize? I don't know. Anastatize? Whatever it is. You, you, you've deadened your senses to any of this. You've deadened your senses to it. And you're not even aware. I'd much rather deal with a person who's trying to earn their salvation than I had a person who could care less and who's not even aware that they're a lost sinner condemned to hell. Because it takes the work of the Spirit of God to convince them otherwise. That's where it all comes from. How can a person be in the right before God? It's Christ. It's Christ. So I guess the question would be, are you in the right before God? Am I in the right before God? Let's look at it. Let's examine it. Let's let Paul in the letter to the Galatians examine it for us. Let's pray together.